Well, before I get into that, I just want to welcome you back, Teresa and Johnny. I'm looking forward to seeing your pictures, and uh, we'll make arrangements for how we'll get to, uh, uh, to, to make that happen, and we'll be sure to announce when and where you can see that. But uh, they just got back from Ethiopia, and Abigail Ely just got back from a, a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. So we've got lots of world travelers back with us, so uh, welcome home. A lot of people don't like the Book of Esther uh, throughout history. Um, uh, Martin Luther didn't like it. Uh, he, he objected to it being included in the canon, but he was you know, over a thousand years too late uh, to make that objection. But I think he just didn't like it because it was too Jewish. Martin Luther, for all the good things he did, had a streak of anti-Semitism that, uh, that infected some of his work. John Calvin pretty much just ignored it. He wrote commentaries on, all, on every other book of the Bible, but, but didn't find time for Esther. And we don't, we don't really know why, or I don't know why. Um, it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God, which seems kind of bizarre for a Bible book. It's not quoted in the New Testament. The New Testament writers love to quote Old Testament, uh, Old Testament writings, but not Esther. And it's the only book of the, uh, of the Old Testament that wasn't found in the Qumran uh, community among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I think I mentioned this last week. The Qumran community were a kind of a fringy group of sort of Jewish monks called the Essenes, and they had women issues. And so it might be that they didn't have the book of Esther because it was too girly. Uh, it might not have been because of anything about the book of Esther. We might learn more about the Essenes by learning that. And also remember with archeological evidence, the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. The fact that archeologists haven't, haven't found any fragments of Esther in the, the Qumran caves doesn't mean that they weren't there, it just means they haven't been found yet. The defense of Esther, uh, to me, is pretty easy. Um, 2,000 years ago, roughly AD 90, a Jewish count, uh, Council of Jamnia included it in the Jewish canon. Um, AD 397, the Council of Carthage says it belongs in the, uh, uh, the Christian version of the Old Testament canon. Realize it takes a leap of faith to believe that these canonical councils did their jobs right, but I'm willing to take that leap. And I'm not willing to continue to second guess their work 2,000 years later. So, so that's, that's a leap I'll take. And here's what I think about the book of Esther. This is my five second review. The main character in the story isn't mentioned. It's the genius of the writing that God is the primary mover in this story and yet his name's not mentioned. And I think we get to see God's providence in the book of Esther. And we'll see more about that as we get into the story. Today we're just going to kind of set the stage. Um, let's do the, um, the biblical context first of all. Um, maybe some of you remember a few years ago we did a verse-by-verse -verse thing all the way through the book of Matthew, and that took us about well, a year to do. But before we did that, in order to set the stage, I did a message called uh, 2,000 Years in 30 Minutes. We did the history of Israel up to the birth of Jesus. Well, now I'm going to do it in 30 seconds, uh, 2,000 years. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about 2,000 years ago, kind of started the nation of Israel. They're the patriarchs. Jacob's second youngest son was Joseph. And he's the one that was responsible for saving him from the famine and getting him to Egypt. In a few hundred years, they're slaves in Egypt, and Moses gets them out of Egypt. That's the Exodus. Uh, Joshua takes them into the Promised Land, kind of takes over. Then we have a period of the judges. And then Israel says, we want a king, and God gave him a king. Saul, David, and Solomon are the kings about 3,000 years ago, 1,000 B.C., during the golden age of Israel, the, the one time in history where Israel is like the top power of the Fertile Crescent. But that only lasted for three kings. Uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was the king when the Civil War broke out. And we can kind of compare this to the American Civil War if the South won. 
If the South had won the American Civil War, then there would be two countries here where there are one. Well, Judah won the Israelite Civil War, and then from the time of Rehoboam on, there were two kingdoms where there had been one before. Uh, the ten tribes are known as Israel, and the two tribes are known as Judah. And then from then on, Kings and Chronicles, you see this king of Israel did that, this king of uh, Judah did that. Um, and you find that both nations are disobedient to God. They're idolatrous, they break the Sabbath, they, they just violate the commands of God, and they're both judged for that uh, by invading, uh, God uses invading armies. 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and take over the northern kingdom. 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and take over the southern kingdom. And so now all the Israelites are enslaved in foreign lands. And that's kind of where we get, uh, gets us up to the book of Esther. The last three books chronologically, historically, if you were going to read the history of the Old Testament, it would be Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And with Ezra, the exile ends and Cyrus, the king of Persia, allows the Israelites to go back home if they want to. Nehemiah tells the end of that story where they build a wall and defend uh, Jerusalem from their enemies. Um, the book of Esther is in the middle of that, actually between chapter 6 and 7 of, of Ezra. Ezra tells the story in chapter 6 of the return of some of the Israelites under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And I was surprised. I didn't know when I started teaching Esther I was going to get to say Zerubbabel, but I really like saying that name, and, and I encourage you to try it too. Zerubbabel. You want to try it? Yeah, that's great. Now, I know when we studied David, I don't know if you remember this, but... Uh, my favorite time studying David was when he went to the town of Michmash. Yeah, I loved saying that. Uh, as far as I know, Zerubbabel never went to Michmash, but just wouldn't it be great if he did? That, that, that'd be the best. Um, so 54 years after Zerubbabel led the first group of exiles back to Israel, it's 483 B.C., and that's when Esther occurs. And that's 25 years before Ezra leads the second group of Israelites uh, back to Israel from the places that, where they'd been enslaved. Now, this is something I learned just this month that I hadn't known before. I kind of assumed that I, I knew the story of the Israelites being punished and enslaved and, and taken into exile, and I knew that they returned or allowed to return after 70 years. What I didn't know is that most of them didn't go. Most of them didn't go home. Um, it's hard. To, the stats on this are a little bit sketchy, but most historians estimate close to 80% stayed in Persia or Babylon or the foreign lands where they'd been taken. And only 20% went back to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, as, at first I was, I was confused about this, and then I thought about an American uh, context. Uh, and, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to make this comparison. The first anti-slavery movements in the United States in the early 1800s had this sort of misguided notion that the best thing to do for freed slaves was to help them go back to Africa. And what's the problem with that? Most of them have never been to Africa. What, what are you talking about our home in Africa? We're Americans now. Uh, even in the second year of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln had uh, a number of uh, African-American leaders to the White House, and he was all excited about his plans. He, he, he was had some land in Africa in mind, or he was thinking about buying some land in Central America where he thought the climate would be comparable. And the African-American leaders were very unenthusiastic about his plan. And they were like, look, this is our home. Now, there's a difference there. The first boatload of slaves came to Virginia in 1619, so it was over 200 years later when the Civil War was being fought. In the Israel, Israelite context, it was over 70 years later. But still, that's long enough that there were no exiles who had been born in Israel 
who were, there, there was no going back to Israel for them. They, are, they were born into captivity. And so they had the chance to be Persian captives and, and, and escape from that and to be in Persian aliens living free. But there, for many of them, Israel had no hold. Now, there's a spiritual reason for that, too, and that's just disobedience because God said, go back. And so the reason many of them didn't go back was, is outright disobedience. So that's where the comparison breaks down. But uh, it's easy to understand in the natural why they weren't anxious to go back. Most of them had nothing to go back to. They had no, no memory or no connection. The other thing you need to know about the setting is this is the one book of the Bible that takes place totally in Persia, um, outside of Israel. Persia is what we would call Iran today, except the Persian Empire was vast. Um, after the Babylonians came the Persians, and for a couple hundred years, they were really the top dogs of the Fertile Crescent. Uh, that ended about the middle of the 3rd century B.C. or the 4th century B.C., around 330 B.C. Anybody remember who came along and, and wiped the, or took over the Persians? Alexander the Great. So now it's the Greeks for a couple hundred years, and then after them the Romans, and that's when Jesus was born. So these guys are you know, before the Romans, before the Greeks. The Persians are sort of the masters of this area, this part of the world. And so this takes place at the Winter Royal Palace in Susa. Uh, the Persian kings had two palaces, one at Persepolis. There was a movie a year or two ago uh, named Persepolis, and that's where the, the summer palace was, and the winter palace was at Susa. Only two characters we're gonna meet in chapter one, Xerxes, who's the king of Persia, and his wife Vashti, uh, who's his queen. A Couple uh, sort of historical notes about the Persians. Uh, you can study the Persians outside of the Bible, and if you take a world history class, you'll learn a few things about them that maybe you recall, maybe not, but I remember them, so I'll tell you. Um, they conquered Babylon in 539 BC, and they stayed, stayed in power till about 330 BC. Uh, they were the first civilization I know of in world history where the king was under the law. And what I mean by that is, in ancient times, you expect you know, pretty much whatever the king says goes. They were oftentimes worshiped as borderline divine. And so the king's word became everybody's command. Um, but here in Persia, if the king made a decree, then even he had to obey it if he changed his mind and didn't like it later. Uh, you can find an example of this in the Bible. In the book of Daniel, Darius I got tricked into doing that lion's den thing, and he didn't like it. And why didn't he? I remember reading that as a kid thinking, why didn't he just undo it? You know, I'm the king. I don't want him to be eaten by the lions. But he'd made the decree, and he had to obey the law. So this is a feature of, of Persian culture, Persian government, that they were really the first to do. The other thing is they introduced, they, they invented mail. Uh, a postal system. You've heard this phrase, neither rain nor snow nor heat nor gloom of night will stay these couriers from their appointed rounds. Well, who's that about? That's about mailmen, right? And you can find those words in the, um, like the New York City Post Office, but those words were first written by the Greek historian Herodotus, and he was talking about the Persian postal carriers. Uh, this, is a, this is a Persian historical phrase. They also developed a, a better form of bureaucracy, which we're actually going to see in this chapter. Uh, I'm not sure, I don't think you see these names in the Bibles, but they divided the, the vast empire of Persia into sort of provinces called satrapies, and each one was ruled over by a satrap. So a satrapy is like a state or a province, and a satrap is like the governor. And so we're going to see them administering their empire using, using them. So let's get into the book and see what it says, uh, uh, starting with uh, Esther 1, uh, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Okay, 
127 provinces. That included Judah and Israel. Uh, these were places that he'd conquered and, of course, included modern-day Iran, but it went much further to India. That's pretty close to the India we know today, but really closer to Pakistan, uh, modern Pakistan. Where's Kush? Kush is in Africa. It includes parts of Egypt, parts of uh, the Sudan, and parts of Ethiopia. Uh, so their empire was pretty vast. Citadel just means fortress, like fortress palace, and I uh, already told you Susa was the winter palace. Xerxes, let's talk about him a little bit. Uh, you, you can read about him in the history books. If you've got a King James version of the Bible, they call him Ahasuerus. But Xerxes is what you, uh, what you see him uh, called in the uh, NIV translation or a more modern translation, and also in the history books. Actually, neither one of those is what his mama called him. Uh, his, his real name was a Persian name that's pretty much unpronounceable. I've seen it in print this week, but uh, I, I can't pronounce it. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew way they said that. Xerxes is the Greek way they said it. Now, why, why does a Persian king, known 2,000 years later by his Greek name? Because history is written by the winners. And in the Greco-Persian Wars, the Greeks won. And so we, most of us have heard about this guy as the loser when he, when he invaded Greece. And, and because his armies lost that war, the Greeks were triumphant histories about, eh, we beat those stinking Persians, they tried to come here, and Xerxes was their king, and we beat him too. And so he was the son of Darius I and the father of Arctaxerxes. Darius I, uh, here's the battle you've heard about with him. Uh, I know you've heard the word marathon. It's based on the, the Battle of Marathon. And uh, Marathon is near the city of Athens, 26.2 miles away. Some of you remember the story from history class. It's starting to ring a bell, maybe. Um, the Persians under Darius I um, tried to invade. Maybe it's not ringing a bell. Okay. Uh, that's all right. Well, good. That'll make it even cooler. Um, the Persians invaded Athens, or they tried to invade Greece. Invade Greece. Um, Marathon was like the port city. Athens was 26 miles away from the sea. But they sent their army down to meet them at the beach, pretty much, and they drove the Persians back into their boats, and they retreated and went back home. And then here's the part of the story that's kind of legendary, and I don't really think it's true history. A runner left Marathon and wanted to tell the good news to the Athenians about, hey, we beat the Persians, and they're back in their boats going home. So he ran all the way home, 26.2 miles, delivered the news, we beat the Persians, and then he collapsed and died. And that's why the race that we run today, that's called you know, people run today, uh, is a marathon is 26.2 miles. You've run a marathon, haven't you, Tyler? And you didn't collapse and die, so you're in better shape than that guy. Um, but uh, um, that's where we get that from. And then the son, Xerxes, wanted to avenge his father's loss, and so he invades. Now, here's a story I bet, I, I bet you've known, or I bet you've heard. He won a costly victory at the Battle of Thermopylae, and maybe that name doesn't ring a bell, but how about the movie 300? Some of you have seen that movie. That's the story of this battle, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. So, so these guys are connected to your world history class in a, in a couple ways. But let's go back to the Bible. Verse 3. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So picture this, a six-month exhibition, and the basic idea is, look how great I am. Look how great we are as Persians, and look how great I am, Xerxes, the king of Persia. Then, 
Verse 5, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Now, we had this six-month exhibition followed by a week-long dinner party banquet, again, celebrating how wonderful we are as Persians and how how great I am, the Persian king. Now, we know from sources outside the Bible that the Persians are getting ready to go to war. We know the exact year. This is 483 B.C. It said in verse 3, the third year of his reign. And, and we know from sources outside the Bible that they're getting ready to go to war. So this is, I, I picture like a pre-war prep rally. Like, he's rallying the troops. He's, he's showing off how great he is. He's gather, gathering the, the leaders to talk about strategy. He's encouraging the rank and file to go give their lives for for Persia. Verse 6, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. What's porphyry? It's just a costly stone. It's like, it's rare and costly. And so if you could picture this mosaic tile, they've got these outdoor patios. They're just having a nice lavish banquet. Verse 7, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now, that's a very liberal and generous thing for the king to do. Normally, people drank when the king drank, and, you know, the, the, the stewards would serve everybody a glass, and, and he'd say, all right, let's drink a toast, and they'd all drink, and uh, you drank when the king drank, whether you wanted to or not. So for the ones that weren't heavy drinkers, that might be hard, and for the ones that were more thirsty, you know, they had to just wait, because the king, we followed the king. But he said, all right, everybody gets to drink however much you want. So it was a very generous and lavish party. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Notice how neutral that phrase is. This is one of those stories that is often embellished by commentators or later writers. People ascribe motives to Xerxes that the Bible doesn't really say. People ascribe motives to Vashti that the Bible doesn't really describe. In the movie One Night with the King, maybe some of you have seen that, this comes off as an anti-war protest by Queen Vashti, which I think is kind of a modern twist. Um, and, and, And let me caution you here, it's not necessary for you to find somebody to root for in this story. You know, these are pagans probably Zoroastrians, they, they don't worship Jehovah, they've never heard of Jesus. It's, it's not like Queen Xerxes, Queen, King Xerxes or Queen Vashti has to be the good guy. As far as I'm concerned, they're probably both bad guys. But, but it's, it sets the stage for the story. So, I mean, when I read this, it's, it's, as neutral as it is, I just sort of picture it's all part of the plan, all part of the big celebration. I picture, all right, uh, on this Sunday, I'm going to teach this congregation, and Gina might go substitute over in the Sunday school and teach there. And we're both kind of working for the same goal, but in two different settings. But that's just how I pictured it, and I'm not sure. Some, some, uh, there's a lot of guesswork with this story, and uh, we don't have to, we don't have to know what their motives were in order to see, to to see how the story plays out, and also to learn some things that we can. Okay, seventh day. So picture this. It's the end of the six months. It's the, also the end of the seven-day banquet. This is the climactic event of the whole celebration. And remember, the purpose of the whole celebration is to show all of King Xerxes' subject how great he is. Seventh day, King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. That's a key detail. He was in high spirits from wine. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. 
Mehuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zither, and Carcass. A little off the subject, but I guess, are, are there any expectant mothers in the room? I always like to point out that, uh, you know, those baby name books don't have the full list, and so we might, we might, might be able to bring some of these back. To bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So, it, some, some commentators like to make this into more than it was. He, he, he didn't command her to dance. He, com he, he commanded just to wear the royal crown. Um, but to come, to, to quit what she's doing and come show off her beauty to his drunken buddies, which more offensive in the 21st century than it would have been, I think, back then. Remember, he's the absolute ruler, uh, borderline divine. Um, but again, I don't, I don't picture this uh, being some big squabble. I don't, I don't picture him having evil motives. I just picture him being kind of clouded in his judgment from the wine. But uh, if we go back to my example, if I said to Gina, hey, send a message. I want you to quit teaching Sunday school. Come over here so we can have a look at you. That would be pretty offensive, I think, uh, <laughs> now. And I think she, without necessarily wanting to defy his authority, it's not necessary to, to interpret that. She was just doing something else. She was fulfilling her role. Um, and so she refused to come, and that's going to make him pretty mad. Let's take a look at how quickly it turns. Verse 12, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Notice how quickly he went from the high spirits from the wine to being furious at her refusal because she just spoiled his big pep rally, didn't she? You know, look how majestic I am. Look how powerful I am. Look how mighty I am. Let's spend six months and a week celebrating that theme. Oh, except my wife's going to defy me now, and now I'm a wimpy loser. Um, and so he is, uh, he's just burning with, with fury over this. And then here's where, here's where it gets messy if the marriage is the goal, because you start fighting your marriage out publicly with a bunch of different advisors, and he said, she said, and the, you know, the guys are whispering to him. It's hard to reconcile. Sort of pre-marriage counseling 101 when, uh, when we counsel a couple who's getting ready to get married. You don't fight it out with your extended family because, see, you guys have opportunities to make up that they won't get to participate in. Um, and so, you know, you tell your sister what a jerk he is, and then two weeks later you forgot what a jerk he is, but your sister still remembers. And, and there's, that's a, a kind of a, a marriage 101 uh, the more people you bring into your marital fight, the harder it is ultimately for you to reconcile and stay reconciled. So, notice though, as angry as he is, he doesn't fly off the handle, order execution, or anything like that. He goes to his counselors and he gets some advice. Verse, th verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Here's some more good names. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. Verse 15, according to the law, what must be done with Queen Vashti? He asked, she has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. By the way, I, I, we've heard about the eunuchs, but I didn't mention them. Uh, many of you probably know, but just in case, eunuchs are people, it was an ancient profession of people who were surgically altered in order to work close to women in the royal palace. And by surgically altered, I mean they were castrated so they wouldn't be a threat to the ladies in the palace and wouldn't be a threat to the king. Remember, 
and because of what ancients believed about royal bloodlines, uh, it's a matter of national interest who's the father of the queen's baby. Um, and so there weren't any men, aren't any men working around the queen who are a threat to that, to that whole system. And so it seems like a, just a horrible job choice to us today, but uh, it was, you know, every job has its sacrifices, and it was one of, the, one of the jobs that people did back then. So verse 16, Memucan has an idea. And by the way, beware of bringing others into your disputes, because sometimes you're going to find, as you find with these guys, their interests aren't necessarily yours, or aren't necessarily the interests of the, the institution. They don't really put Persia's goals first. They put, these guys are worried about what's going to happen with their wives and at their house. Verse 16, Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. That very day, this very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So pretty much, if you let your wife get away with this, we're going to be we're going to be paying for it in our own marriages. We're no longer going to be the bosses of our own homes. Our wives are going to be doing whatever they want. This is bad for us, so we need for you to fix it. Verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed. Here's that feature of, of Persian law again. It cannot be repealed. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. The story has lots of irony. She wouldn't come before the king. So what's her punishment? Never come before the king. And give her position to someone better than she. That kind of reminds me of divorce American style in the 21st century. They're just encouraging Xerxes trade up. You know, trade up, find somebody who's more compliant. Um, which, if, if you, you've heard the stats on divorce American style, that seldom works. You know, sociologists and psychologists have studied people who trade up and, and found that most of the time they're not happier after the trade than they were before. Verse 20, then when the king's edict is proclaimed, oh, this is my favorite part. Um, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Good luck with that. That seems like a plan <laughs> that's just doomed. Uh, I, I, it seems like such a funny thing that, uh, yeah, she disobeyed, now we're going to banish her, and now we'll get the respect we deserve. I, his, his, his advisors just seem like buffoons to me. All right, verse 21. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches. Here are the post roads again. It's easy to get the news out to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Okay, that's the end of chapter one. There are three years between chapter one and chapter two that the Bible doesn't tell you about, but the history books tell you about, and I'll tell you about very quickly here. 483 BC is the party. 481 BC, the war with Greece starts up again. The Battle of Thermopylae is the story that's told in the movie 300 where the brave Spartans give their lives and defend this pass, but they all die. But it's a very costly victory for the Persians, and it allows the Athenians to get behind their walled cities and kind of withstand the siege. Then two naval battles, Salamis and Plataea, are both victories for the Greeks, and that sends the Persians back home. And in the history books, the world history books, this is told as the story of the victory of the civilized Greeks over the, the, the more 
primitive Persians. The Greeks, because they survived this invasion from Persia, are now free to invent drama and philosophy and democracy and all the things that we, we celebrate about Greek culture because the Persian bully neighbors didn't overthrow them. And so this is a, a one of the, the, the victory of the Greeks in the Greco-Persian War is like a turning point in European history because the Greeks survived to do all the things that we, we appreciate about the Greeks. Now let's go on to verse 2 excuse me, chapter two, and just look at the first four verses and see, kind of set the stage for next week. Because now he's lost his queen, he kicked her out, and he went to attack the Greeks and he lost. And so now he's kind of home, sort of pouting over both losses. Verse one, later when the anger of queen Zer King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. So it just says he remembered her, but evidently he remembered her and he was kind of sad because he missed her. Verse 3, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So what we're going to see in chapter 2 is pretty much like a modern reality show on TV this week. It's going to be like Persia's next top model combined with the Persian royal bachelor and we're going to choose a new queen, right? And that's the thing I see about that that's kind of funny to me is you know, we look back at these primitive cultures and think how backward they were. And yet, how far have we really come? Uh, and so, I mean, it's not it's not going to be royal Persian royalty making their choices this week, but that's just maybe because the producers haven't thought of that one yet. Okay, and this is the, we're going to end with this today. Verse 4, the, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So next week, we're going to see the king following that advice, and they're going to have the beauty contest, and he's going to choose a new queen. Of course, you know it's going to be Esther. So what about that applies to us today? What can we learn for our lives? What can we learn for our marriages? I, I think I found a few things that aren't too much of a stretch from the text. First of all, better decisions don't usually come from a lot of wine. Uh, I took my mom to the pain management clinic several times over the last year, and they had this funny list of instructions. Uh, some made perfect sense to me, but when I would take her home, they would say, you know, no heavy machinery, no driving a car, which was obvious. And it would also say, don't make any important decisions tonight. And it surprised me to see that on the list, but it seemed perfectly logical for her not to make career or, or household decisions uh, under that influence. And mine, same story. It won't really help you make good decisions about, about your marriage. Secondly, she is not your trick pony or... <laughs> Uh, a trophy wife is a more modern phrase. Your wife and husbands does not exist for your, your viewing pleasure or for your, your, you know, let's show my friends how cool I am kind of pleasure. That's not it. She is yours to love. And we are to love her as Christ loved the church. He laid his life down for her. Now, most of your wives wouldn't get a whole lot of benefit out of that if you died. So what that means is you get to live for her you know, today and every day, not use her to make your life more fulfilled. Avoid airing out your marital disputes in public. The more, the more soups you, the more chefs you've got stirring this soup, the harder it's going to be to work it out. Choose your advisors carefully. Xerxes had some advisors that were more concerned about their well-being than they were about his well-being and Persia's well-being. So choose your advisors carefully. Avoid rash decisions. Now Xerxes did go to get some advice, but but then he jumped on the advice that really wasn't all that great, and then. Avoid internal vows. This is something I think might require just a little bit of explanation. 
I don't think we have any royalty in the room, so we don't have to really worry about making decrees that can't be undone. But I've known several people, and I've, had, I've been in a relationship with people who have made internal vows where they would say things like, if this doesn't happen, if he doesn't say this, if she doesn't do that, then I'm never, ever going to, and you fill in the blank. And I don't know if any of you have heard of people doing that, but, but be aware of that. Um, that's, oftentimes you can kind of paint yourself into a corner where you don't really belong. Uh, there's a recovery cliche that says, do the next right thing. And, and oftentimes those cliches come from, from, from a real nugget of wisdom. I'm not responsible for figuring out the end of my life and how it's going to be. I'm responsible for doing the next thing right and to, to honor God and do his will in my next decision. And after I make that one, I'll worry about the one after that. But uh, those internal vows where we draw these lines in the sand, oh, I'm never going to do this or I'm never going to do that because of what somebody else did. And that's what Xerxes did, and he lived to regret it. And that's what I think, that's what I would warn you against today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, uh, I thank you for what we've learned today. I thank you, Lord, for uh, helping us to glean principles for today uh, from this ancient text. Lord, as we dig into the book, I ask that you'd help us to learn even more. Help us to learn practical things that we can apply to our own marriages and our own relationships at work and at church and, and uh, in the community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.